the idea of being a manager kind of makes my skin crawl. The idea of being a leader, like a true servant leader, is very rewarding. The best thing I can do is help other people get to where they want to be. Hello, I'm Steve Class with the business breakthrough you've been waiting for. We're here taking service businesses to a million dollars and beyond. Let's see what kind of impact the next 30 minutes will have on your life and your business. Hello, fellow Success with Class listeners. I just finished an interview with Mark McDaniel uh, with Stay Simply. He owns some beautiful A-frame cabins in the hills of the Smoky Mountains. In addition to this, he also owns several car washes, which I know doesn't make, it make sense, like they, they don't really correlate, but he purposely bought them as a, a tax write-off move. So his strategy is amazing. Um, if you ever wanted to get into the short-term rental business, has successfully run a, a company, how to deliver with, with excellent service to make sure your guests are left with a wow factor, and how to diversify your income by buying a car wash or buying a laundromat or anything on the service-based business aspect, um, especially if for capital gains purposes, this episode is for you. Um, it's packed with some insightful nuggets and gems of Mark's personal journey in entrepreneurship and about having a purpose-driven, service-based um, organization is the number one value on how to lead a successful enterprise. So without further ado, let's get deep into the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Success with Class. I am here with Mark McDaniel. Uh, this gentleman and I connected through a uh, mutual acquaintance, this gentleman named Luis Diaz, who's the owner of Top Ten Podcasts. He's helped both of us launch our podcast. And after interviewing me and Mark separately, he's like, you guys really need to sit down together, get to know each other a little bit. I think there's a lot of natural synergies here. And Mark left at the opportunity, interviewed me first, so he beat me to it. And we had a really, really great conversation. We spoke about sales and marketing, um, you know, having a purpose-driven mission statement. After the podcast ended, I'm like, man, I got to get this guy on my show. I, he, he has the same vibe and frequency that I have. And as someone who is not a natural-born entrepreneur, this is something I struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis, Mark exudes this calm, cool, and collected mentality. And uh, for those of you who are uh, watching, he has a poster behind him that's The Man in the Arena by Theodore Roosevelt about the general concept is just like, it's the guy who struggles and overcomes is uh, going to be the, the person who's going to achieve success. And I know that there's some struggle behind Mark's eyes that he's going to share with us very soon. So Mark, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having, uh, having us on. Man, it is a true pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure, man. Um, so I, I really want to peel back the onion here a little bit more and learn more about your past. Were you always an entrepreneur-driven person where like you're selling lemonade as a kid, shoveling snow, or was this something that you acquired this tool about the skill sets as you went through the move through the ranks of corporate America? Yeah, the answer is yes. So um, <clears throat> to both of those questions. Like I grew up, I was a middle child. And so there's something about the birth order where like older children are natural leaders and then middle children are generally entrepreneurial types and younger children. Um, you know, my, my younger brother's going to kill me, but they're usually just, you know, the baby. And so, um, yeah, I kind of always have had it a little bit, you know? Um, so you know, I went through, went through high school and, um, I love 
I love the struggle. Like I was a runner and um, I actually ran my freshman year in college, but um, I just loved kind of going through the process and the pain and coming out the other side. I always loved the process and running's kind of a lone sport. You know, it can be a team sport as far as points rankings and stuff like that, but it is a little bit of a lone sport and I always kind of had that inclination. And so you kind of fast forward to college and I, I kind of go through college and then I get my very first job and I'm working for CentOS, the uniform people, and I go through their management trainee program. And first I'm on the services team and then I'm on the catalog team and then I go into the sales team. But during this process, like I realize what this company's doing. They're basically like buying clothes from, let's just say, Carhartt. Then they're going to the local embroidery shop and they're getting embroidered with um, their client's company logo. And then they're selling it to the client. And I'm like, I can do that. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't seem that complicated, right? And so this this is fascinating to me, man, because I lived it, but... Both of my parents were in the union. My dad drove a train for a living, so he was part of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. My mother was a teacher, and so she was part of um, part of the teachers' union. And so to them, the word was always like, get a good job, get good benefits, work, be good to the, to the employer, they'll be good to you, and you'll retire at this age with benefits and money in the bank. And it's not... It's, it's not bad advice. I mean, I can't blame my parents for giving me that advice. It's what they knew. And so um, I do remember this, though. I, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I, I asked my parents to meet me for dinner. And I had it all built up in my head that I was going to leave my very first job and I was going to start like an embroidery and corporate corporate logo type business. I was like, I can do this. I can compete. I'm doing it. I'm basically doing it now. And what 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 uh year was this roughly? This was Stephen. I want to say this was 2001, probably. So I was like right. a year. So right around the dot com bubble, you know, yeah. era. So this is before Facebook. This is before really any social media, and before YouTube was like the monster it is. So education seemed to be from your job and experience, and you know, books at this point. Yeah, that's right. And so um, I meet my parents. I'll never forget it. I meet them at On the Border, my favorite food is Mexican. And I pitched them this idea. And their response was like, you, you can't do this. Like, you, you just can't do this, Mark. Like, this is, they didn't say this is the worst idea ever. But in their eyes, it was like such disappointment. Like, they didn't, and I can't blame them. Like, they just didn't know better. And so... I ended up not doing that. Um, but you fast forward a few years later and um, a friend of mine had started this IT business and he didn't know sales from spit. And he had asked me to come over and help them. He was probably like three people at that time and start this IT business in Greensboro, North Carolina. And that was 2008, 2000, late 2007, early 2008. Which is another terrible time. Yeah, yeah another so horrific time business, right? And that was another terrible time. But the good thing about ignorance is ignorance is bliss, and you don't know what you don't know. So everybody around you is melting down, and you're like, "Well, I mean, I've got nothing to lose," and I kind of did have something to lose because I had a brand new, 
baby daughter at the time. You know, I was, I was just married like a couple years in. And so, but I, you know, I just had this God given, um, idea of risk inside of me that I always knew that I would be okay. Like I always know I'm going to be okay. What am I really trying to protect here? And so we started an IT company in 2008 and we actually sold it in 2015. And I led our, um, our healthcare sales teams and other so sales you grew teams. That from that three employees in 2008, which is the worst time probably start a business. And as you were growing it, what was the end result in 2015? And how that, what, what did that team grow into? Yeah, we had probably 65 employees, 2 million to 135 million in revenue. That's incredible. Wow. Which is three. So yeah. you, were, you were really the, like one of the founders at that point. Yeah. And so, I mean, in hindsight, like you and I were talking before the show about this idea of a fractional CFO, we never got like a true CFO during that time. And so we were, we were all like the owners of the company. We were all just entrepreneurs, just guns ablazing, going real hard all the time. Like I know how many hours are in a week because I worked almost all of them for five <laughs> years. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there's some things we would have done differently, obviously, but, um, you know, great experience can't, can't change it for the world. Is that where you, you think you earned your stripes and leadership capabilities? Because prior to that, I know you were a manager, but when you're leading a big business like that, that turns into 65 employees, would you say that's where you cut your teeth? Yeah. I mean, it, it really just takes, um, I mean, I kind of see like the idea of being a manager kind of makes my skin crawl. The idea of being a leader, like a true servant leader is very rewarding. Like the best thing I can do is help other people get to where they want to be. And so if, if I make up my mind every morning, man, I just need to help these seven people get to where they want to be, either that's financially, spiritually, you know, whatever it is, then I'll be taken care of. I don't have to worry about me. And so that's kind of where I kind of grasped this idea of servant leadership. And, and within our company at the time, we were studying um, Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. And he, for Stay those far. of you who don't know who Tony Shea is, he created Zappos, who got acquired by Amazon. But he later his he whole passed business away, model, didn't he? I believe, unfortunately. That? I think he passed away, unfortunately. He did. He the did. fire or something along those lines. But he was, uh, I, I've listened to his podcast before of the ethos of Zappos, but it, it's a really, really great read and lesson of just service focused business. Yeah. And that's kind of how we, we tried to build our leadership team and our leadership mindset back then. So uh, when this exit came upon you, did you have a game plan of like, okay, this is happening and now I'm going to pursue X or was it, Hey, I just need to take a breather. Let me kind of rest on my laurels, so to speak, and then figure out the next move. Or did you say, hey, when this when this happens, I'm leaping right into the next adventure? Here's the crazy thing is like, first of all, the answer is I'm just going to take a little bit of a breather. So I kept working for the company who acquired us. And um, the crazy thing is for that entire seven years, I was like, you have to have your foot to the pedal the entire time if you're ever going to be successful growing a business. And I would say to an extent, that's a little bit true. But when I took my foot off the pedal and I kind of released some of the control, like I had a little bit of a control issue, like we end up having the best, like that back half of that year, 
was the best sales year we ever had. It was crazy. Like I was just like, I'm going to stop controlling. I'm going to take a breather. I'm going to work out and do a book study in the mornings. And I'm going to like spend time with my family in the afternoons. Whereas before I was like breakfast with client, dinner with client, on and on and on. It turns out like, you know, I would have, I would have been fine not, not doing all that. And I could have, it's the, the ego, so to speak. It's that, uh, uh, Ryan Holiday has a book called Ego is the Enemy, which I love. And he, he speaks about just kind of getting out of your own way. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's, I think the true delegation comes with letting that ego go of like, I'm going to trust you to do this job and maybe you won't do it quite as well or as, as the same way I would do it, but I know you're going to get to the job done and that's going to yeah. liberate you. So In hindsight, like it's amazing we were successful despite myself, you know, <laughs> like I, as far as I just didn't get in the way. So um, yeah, pride and ego. I to- totally agree with that. So you stay with this company after the acquisition occurs. At what point do you get the juices flowing of like, I want to move into, which I know you as, as the real estate team. Yeah. So when did, yeah. when did that start to occur? Yeah. So probably about a, a, a month after, like it, it kind of stopped and started and I knew I wanted to create some sort of long lasting passive income for my family. And it's amazing the doors that, that kind of got opens along the way. And so it started like we um we went down to Mississippi and um I was pitched this idea of buying these really inexpensive properties down in Mississippi and hiring a property manager and um money just flows in and on paper it, it looked amazing great. but yeah. it turns <laughs> out people in Jackson don't pay their rent and so yep. they didn't work out but I always had this heart for hospitality and I always kind of liked the idea of a short-term rental. And so I went down to Florida and looked. I went to Charleston, South Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, Austin, Texas. Went to all these places that I thought short-term rentals would be great. And um, and it they would be great. But a lot of those cities either have high operational expenses, meaning like Florida, the, the operational expenses of having insurance and um, just the wear and tear on your product. And then you look at Charleston and Nashville and Austin, they have a lot of city ordinances around Airbnbs, um, what you can and cannot do. Um, and then like kind of right in our backyard is the Smoky Mountains. And I kind of overlooked it because, um, I don't know, I viewed it through this prism as not a kind of an upscale market, which I kind of wanted to focus on an upscale clientele. But it turns out like, you can try things as an entrepreneur. Sometimes you can just put something out there and it works. And so, um, between buying and fixing up and building new homes, like we went for an upscale clientele and there's a lot out of 15 million people, there's going to be people looking for, you know, an upscale product. And so we decided to focus our energy on the smoky mountains of Tennessee and it has been wonderful. And so how that's many probably, properties? I bought my first one probably 2016 in Tennessee, which is which is great. Uh, I'm sure that's appreciated nicely if you still own it uh, compared to like the yeah. COVID bump, as I say. So, as you were buying these properties, and it seems that you were leading with great intentionalities of high high level of service with a high net worth individual who would really enjoy being in this environment. Um, so there's intentionality behind there. 
how quickly did you grow your portfolio in those Smoky Mountains? Like how many do you have currently? Yeah. So, I mean, back then, um, I just kind of had this vision for what things would look like. I'm like, all right, I just want to get five. It's going to make me this amount of money. Um, and so I, I, things started appreciating from 16 to 17 and 17 to 18 and 18 to 19. And that's before the COVID bump happened. And so I, I, I wanted to do it passively. So I wasn't managing my own properties at the time. And it's before the idea of bonus depreciation kind of came into my head and, and taxes and stuff like that, which, you know, I should have thought about that first. But anyway, so I, I went through, I mean, honestly, I went through probably six to seven, maybe even eight property management companies. Maybe that says something more about my character um, than their level of service because I, I just wasn't getting what I wanted. Like I just was not getting what I wanted. And we were growing this portfolio. And so I reached a point where I was like, I think we're going to acquire a property management company. Like it makes sense to acquire a property management company. And so we went down the road with a couple property management companies and got to about the two yard line and realized that culture is a lot. And so up there, these property management companies had been around for a while and had developed this culture of like, hey, you know, we're the only game in town. We'll charge 40 percent. We're more about you know, charging these fees than we are about getting the owner's return. Like it was just that kind of type of mindset. And I was like, that is not what I want to be acquiring because it's going to take harder to like weed all of that out. It's going to be harder to weed all that out than it would be to start a new company. And so ultimately we just decided to build a company on the backs of our own properties. And then we started slowly offering it to other homeowners with the whole idea of, hey, we're investors. We understand what you want. You want a clean cabin. You want everything to be functional and you want to return on your investment. And then from the guest standpoint, like we always like to say, every guest wants to be a millionaire for the weekend. They want to walk in. They want it to be beautiful. They want it to be clean. They want everything to be functioning. And they've saved up their whole year sometimes to pay for this vacation. They want it to be great. And so that was the idea. That was the driving factor. The driving factor was never, man, we're going to trim this off, which means we're going to make this much more money. The driving factor was, we're just going to make these properties great. And if we make them great and this experience great for the homeowner and the guests, then we're going to be taken care of. Now, what makes a property great? So if you're short, if you want to get into the short-term management game or you're thinking about Airbnb, any home really, what do you think the secret sauce is? Like, what what would you say is the the like the top three like wow moments when a guest walks in? Yeah, a little little backstory to the Smoky Mountains. So for year, people have been renting cabins up there since the '30s, and so a little backstory is that people are used to renting cabins with like a bear print on the sofa and um, you <laughs> like know, a huntsman uh, lodge. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, just. Just kind of yeah. like this, not dirty, but this kind of older feel. And so the the idea is like, I don't want to be, so there's thousands of rentals up there. I don't want to be one of 4,000 four bedrooms. I want to be one of one. 
And so if I can make myself one of one, meaning I'm at the tip of the spear as far as design of the cabin, maybe making it look a little more modern, maybe using sheetrock instead of tongue and groove, or if I do have tongue and groove, maybe adding some paint there instead of it just being all brown inside, um, hiring an interior designer, putting in all the right amenities, meaning like I'm putting in golden tea in every, into every cabin, I'm putting in shuffleboard. I'm putting in the best of the best, you know, big game hunter, like the best of the best games. We have pools, indoor and outdoor pools in all of our cabins. Um, just being at the tip of the spear, like now, it seems like the latest trend, and we've got a few under construction, are these like pool areas with these indoor big garage doors. And we're doing these A-frame cabins with like half of the roof like, which is all glass. Like we'll do like at least partial of the roof, which is all glass, which is really cool when it rains and stuff like that. So we think if we're always tip of the spear and maybe one of five or one of one versus one of 400 or one of 3000, then we'll always be relevant regardless of the market conditions, regardless of, you know, how many people are visiting. And I think it's all right, yeah. you, you really capture the essence of having an experience when someone walks into one of these cabins of the wow factor of like, there's a two pools, jacuzzi, hot tub. There's going to be uh, these floor to ceiling windows to take in like the breadth of the landscape. And I think that's what a lot of short-term rental owners miss. And I, we've seen an oversaturation for sure in the past couple of years where everyone thinks they can make a million, million bucks by just no renting out their spare bedroom or buying a property and putting Ikea furniture in there, the bare minimum. Yeah. And now we're, we're seeing a culling of the people who just got into it for the money, who thought they were, this would be a passive income stream. And I think you're onto something. And I think other entrepreneurs who want to get into short-term rentals should pay heed to this, where there's got to be a reason someone's walking into your house. I interviewed this gentleman named Travis Sherry, and he, he also has a short-term rental business, but he's in South Carolina along the beachfront. And he calls it the the the, the blue L, the blue hippo mentality, where if you're driving and you happen to see a blue hippo on the side of the road, you're gonna pull over like, man, what is going on over here? This is cool. I haven't seen this. Let me take a couple pictures, post on social media. You need to have that factor for your properties, uh, and yeah. especially if you want to have recurring guests that move away from Airbnb. Now they're going to your company, which is called Stay Simply. So you're getting direct bookings. So they're not you're not competing with the Airbnb market and building up that reputation of excellence of service. So, so right. I'm, I'm, I expected that answer. So I, I'm glad you delivered on that. Um, the service. There's side another blue called, you know, the blue ocean mentality. Like, you know, the red ocean is filled full of blood and there's everybody's fighting to the bottom and everybody's kind of got the same look and the same feel. And the problem is a lot of investors get in and they're like, man, I just spent all this money. I want to start making money. I don't want to spend extra to make it different. But the extra is what's going to make you more money in the long term. It's a really hard pill to swallow. But once you swallow that pill, you're over here in the blue ocean because you're swimming just you're swimming free. You've got a you've got a product that appeals to everybody. Yeah, and that's the same mentality I had for my own property management business. I saw all these realtors competing and fighting it amongst themselves to get the same listing. I'm like, I'm going to start a high level service property management business. Nobody else is doing this. And now I have the realtors working for me to kind of handle a lot of the listings. So it's I 100% yeah. agree with that. And it's also a really good book if, if someone's listening um, called The Blue Ocean Strategy. Now, what, is, what does it take to 
handle these rentals and deliver this consistent service? Because obviously you're just one person. You have to make sure you have a great housekeeping team. Let's peel behind the curtain a little bit. What does your operations look like behind the scenes to ensure your guests have the best weekend of their lives, so to speak? Yeah, we we try to be really thoughtful about that. And so when we started the company, we actually hired a coach um, to kind of help us from an operational standpoint. But we went a little bit further and kind of thought about like, what are, is there one thing that we can do that takes care of like 90% of guest problems. And so like 90, probably more than 90% of guest problems is either cleanliness or something's not functioning. Mm-hmm. So we took our head, like we took our head of housekeeping and trained them on guest communication and put them in charge of communication. And so now instead of, Hey, I've got this person doing guest communication, who's pointing the finger at cleaning and maintenance. Now you have somebody who actually is responsible for cleaning and maintenance, also handling guest communication. So it's not a he said, he said, she said type of thing. And so now they're hearing it directly from the, you know, from the guest mouth. Hey, this isn't functioning. And so it's an ownership stake now. There's accountability you created. There's skin in the game. There's accountability to it. And, um, and we want to kind of take the pride out of the equation. Oh, you're personally attacking me. It's never that. It's, hey, this genuinely might not be clean or this genuinely isn't functioning. And so we can nip it in the bud a lot, a lot quicker. I mean, these are houses. Things happen. Things break. Sometimes cleaners miss things. It's how we react that makes it better. And so that was one thing uh, to answer your question. Uh, we also hired a general manager who's a who's responsible for the overall operation and she's comped on five-star reviews. And so I like to tell new owners this, like our general manager who you'll be communicating with is compensated on how well your cabin does. So they're compensated on revenue and they're compensated on five-star reviews. And so we like to put these built-in factors that kind of motivate a person to to do better. So those are two main things. We do have... um, like a catalog of videos that I've made, like just just X's and O's, blocking and tackling type stuff within our within our property management software, how to handle this guest situation or how to handle this. But um, for the most part, we just have just a small team. We have a lot of contractors on the cleaning and maintenance team. And then we have some other folks who work on the team, but um, we have uh, three three total employees outside of my partner and myself. So that's a pretty lean operation. And, and how many homes are you guys up to? So we have 25, maybe getting ready to be 27. We've got a couple more coming on. That's great. I got up to eight, 80 right before I sold my company. And that was all long-term. So I know how much work goes, how much, I think it's more than double the amount of work when you're dealing with short-term easily, because you're just having got so it. many guest interactions on a weekend basis or, you know, and if someone's paying a premium price to stay at your cabin and the Wi-Fi goes out at 10 o'clock at night, they want it back on. You're oh, going to yeah. get that phone call as opposed to long-term oh, yeah. guests at long-term um, lease. It's not really your problem. Like they're going to contact Optimum. They're going to contact Verizon and figure it out on their own. So that, right. that level of service has got to be consistent throughout the entire stay having procedures. And SOP, you've mentioned SOPs about having like the video elements for your team. I'm sure is super helpful. 
Yeah, that's that's all exactly right. You're exactly right. It's it's a little better return. Like if you're doing it right, it's a little better return than long-term rentals. But you know, the IRS views short-term rentals as an active business, whereas they view long-term biz rentals as a passive business. I mean, unless you're doing it full time, obviously. Um, and there's a reason. It's because they kind of see it like a business with real estate on the side, whereas they see long-term yeah. as real estate with you know, kind of the business hand in hand. Very true. So, so you build out this portfolio, and I know this is going to take uh, listeners for a loop. As though that wasn't enough, you decided that to go into the the, uh, the car wash industry almost accidentally, it seems. So, when I say you're an entrepreneur at heart, you really, really uh, do take that at heart, and um, you know, are, are diversifying yourself. And I, I believe after before we had this, uh, we hit record on here. You mentioned that you owns quite a few car washes. How how does how are you managing your time at this point? And what advice can you give to other entrepreneurs who have multiple businesses or want to start maybe another business of making sure all this doesn't fall apart in case, God forbid, you get sick, you want to go on vacation for a week or two? Like, what what is the thought process behind there? Yeah. I mean, that is a great question. And um, like, I remember I studied Spanish in college and uh, that was one of my majors. And I remember taking like five years of Spanish and then um, for about nine months, I went to Mexico and I just was kind of forced and I jumped in and I learned so much within that time and I was scared. But what, Which what you learn you is like, yeah. you'll, you'll figure it out. And so this car wash business, like you said, it was accidental. Like it was really a tax play. It was really an opportunity to get bonus depreciation and, um, the person who's, I'm analytical, uh, but the person who like just is excruciatingly like diving into the numbers and what am I going to do here? And what am I going to do here? Like playing the what if game over and over is never going to do it. They're never going to do it. But what I did was I just jumped in. I was like, I got a problem. This helps me solve it. I'll learn the business or I'll hire people to help me learn the business. And so we have, we bought five car washes um, there was a capital gains issue. So we bought five car washes, helped us overcome that. And it turns out the car wash business is a great business. So we've upfitted all of them. We've increased revenues in all of them. Um, and I'll say like to your question, to your main question is how do you manage your time and how do you, you know, how do you get your head around all that? I just surrounded myself early with partners and people who knew the business really, really well. And I've just got this keen sense for folks who are going to be honest with you and straight with you versus folks who might be in it more for themselves. And so I was able to kind of sort through some of that and latched on to people who um, kind of led me down the right path. And so like, for instance, we, we put in credit card readers in a lot of our car washes that didn't accept credit cards. We upfitted one car wash to be a subscription model with free vax versus just like the regular old kind of 24 sure. seven wash. Um, and it's turned out to be great. You know, revenues have increased 30% on all of them. And now if we want to sell them, we can sell them for a, for a higher multiple. And so, and they're all kind of running themselves. And so, you, you know, we've got an employee running three of them. We've got another you know, lady running, running another one. And then another gentleman running another one. Cause they're in, they're all over the state of North Carolina. And it seems 
to me that you're, you're finding these really excellent operators of people who know the industry inside and out and trusting them that they have good character, good ethics, and that they have the skill and know-how to how to handle the business. And this, I think, harkens back to when you were part of the IT company of the letting go. Because if you were the type of person who was showing up every day to all these car washes and driving people nuts with like different micro impossible. infractions and this and that, it, it wouldn't have succeeded. So it, it seems like impossible. you definitely carry the lesson over in, into these businesses. Now, how... How did you structure it where there's accountability? Because it seems that there's accountability in a short-term rental business. And I assume there's going to be accountability when it comes to car washes. Is I'm going to guess that there's some incentive-driven program for some of your employees. Yeah, I mean, not as much. So first of all, to kind of tackle the first part of what you were saying there, like I can choose to trust them or I can choose not to trust them. And so um, three of our car washes... It's, it's funny when like you hire the right person um, and this is by chance. It's so the new, first of all, the new tunnel car washes, it would be easily to incentivize people to sell more car, to sell more memberships because these memberships, like they're driving the car wash industry. But a lot of our car washes are non-membership based. In fact, four out of five of them are non-membership based. And so, um, you know, I've just I've just hired people like who I've I've been associated like either with my church or something like that where I kind of know their character. Like one of the three of the car washes was a gentleman who was kind of he has his own lawn maintenance business. And um I just saw through his work that he really cared. Like he took the time and he paid attention. And so to answer your question, we don't have much of an incentive program out there right now for those. Um, their incentive is that, you know, their pride is like they want the place to look good. A lot of a car wash is, does it function and does it look good? And so kind of kind of like short-term rentals, does it function and does it is it clean and does it look good? Um and so a lot of it, you know, is based off of a three mile radius. So I'm responsible for the marketing, get, getting people in the door and they're responsible for making it look pretty and functioning. And so it's kind of a team thing. Um, now, will I incent them? Like if, if we're doing great at the end of the year, I mean, heck yeah. Like I want to, I want to share in that. Do they know that yet? No, they don't know that yet. I've only owned them a year. So it's, it's in progress. So wait, in one year, you've already gotten to up to five. That's very impressive. And and are you acquiring these pre-existing or are these new build-outs? I assume that these are pre-existing that weren't doing that great and you scooped up from old ownership. Yeah, these were pre-existing and they had to be um, because the problem we had, remember, was um, we had a capital gains issue and we had to overcome that. And so the, you know, that, that helped us with, with our capital gains tax. So it, it seems to me that you, know, you have the short-term rental business, you have the car wash business. What's next for, for Mark and family? Because uh, I, I know that you're not this, the type to sit on your laurels and just like, hey, this is humming along. I'm good. My brain, I'm just going to kind of go on autopilot. I'm sure there's some inner workings going on. So what's your five-year plan here of where you see, yeah. see yourself and the company going? Yeah, that's that's good. We're, we're continuing to develop short-term rental properties. Um We'll continue to develop what we call tip of the spear type properties with the best amenities and the best look and feel. Um, and it's interesting. People are kind of down on real estate market right now. 
But because we bought when we bought, it's it's created an interesting, um, an interesting, I guess, opportunity for us. So there's buyers out there who are having a hard time getting underwritten because banks don't have the deposits to lend money in a lot of times, and interest rates are high. So now, if we want to sell a property, which we're doing, we're we're selling off um, five. Five of our properties, we own 13, we're selling off five of them and we're doing owner financing. So we're taking money off the table. So we're requiring a decent amount of down payment and we're doing owner financing uh, with a five-year balloon. So we can be just under the regular, the normal interest rate. And it is, this actually becomes like truly, truly passive. And our only requirements are that we manage the property. So we still are managing the property. That means we can ensure that we're getting paid for our interest payment. And we're giving them a, an opportunity to to have a tax incentive and have passive income and, and all of that as well. And so you can look at this current real estate market two ways. You can look at it, oh man, it's so hard. It's so difficult to buy. Um, but for us, it's been great because of when we did buy, uh, we're doing owner financing on a few properties and it's working out great. That's a fantastic strategy. That's the first I've actually heard of saying, hey, I'll sell you the property, owner financing, keep me on as a manager. So you're still kind of keeping that revenue stream open, but yeah. now it's like you're giving someone else the opportunity, one, to expand the portfolio, really get passive income because they're going to still be hands-off on the purchase um, and getting them into the game. But you, you still, even though you've you know, gotten rid of the assets, so to speak, you're definitely involved, which I love. So yeah. that's, that's a very, very keen insight. It's kind of like um, if you've heard, read the book Good to Great by um, by Jim Collins, he talks about this idea of a flywheel. And so like Netflix has a flywheel and their their kind of purpose is to create incredible content. And if they get create incredible content, they get more subscribers. And if they get more subscribers, they get more money. And if they get more money, then they can create more content. So for us, if we create incredible properties then we can get more guests. And if we get more guests, then we get more money. Or if we create incredible properties, then we can sell it easier. And if we can sell it easier, we get more money, which allows us to create more properties. So it's just this positive flywheel. Now there can be like a doom spiral, like you can like Circuit City back in the day, went into a doom spiral where it just kept getting worse and worse. But you can create this positivity and where a lot of entrepreneurs go wrong is they get the more money and they don't go back to where they started of creating and, you know, creating more whatever your creation is, you know, because you spend all this money and time to create and you spend all this work to create. And then you're finally over here where you're actually making money and you're like, oh, finally, I just want to take all my chips off the table. Whereas the right thing to do to get the flywheel going is to reinvest and keep it going and going and keep going. It going. And I, I think that a lot of people will put in those years of work and feel like they've earned the income now. I'm like, oh, I'm good. And that's to your point is when you start to see the dip occur where the product starts to suffer or the service starts to suffer because they're not really paying as much attention. They're not as innovative as they used to be. And that's, yeah. again, Circuit City, all these other big companies have, have lost their edge. Um, that's a great mentality to have as a, a leader and to oversee the properties. 
and I'm sure you're going to be a continuous success. So, man, I, as we wrap I up, this, no, let's let's wrap it up. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say so. So I always end this podcast with with uh, the same question, and I, I know you're going to give me an insightful answer. Rewinding the clock back to a young Mark who was about to sit down with his parents and discuss his business idea. Know what you know now, so you have all the knowledge and all the resources and experience, but you're implanted into that 20-something-year-old body. What would you say to yourself, and what greater advice would you give to a younger entrepreneur? Man, that's so good. Um, and I've got a friend who we were just talking about this the other day. So many times we have a vision for our life. And I think, you know, sometimes God gives us a vision for our life, whether that's three years, five years, or or many years in the future. But we let the cloudiness of today murk up the vision for our life. And so, for instance, um, this friend I'm talking about, he's a, an ultra marathoner. And ultra marathons are generally 100 miles. Um, they're, more than, they're more than a marathon. Anything more than a marathon is considered an ultra marathon, but a lot of them are like 100 mile races and they start at six or seven in the morning. And the worst miles for an ultra marathoner are between mile 60 and mile 80. And generally you'll find yourself after midnight, two in the morning, between mile 60 and mile 80 on this road, this dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and you'll have a headlamp on and you'll be by yourself. And all you can see is six feet in front of you and six feet on either side, because that's all you can see and you're alone. And you, all you want to do is you want to quit. And if you didn't have that vision of, man, daylight's coming soon. Man, the finish is going to be here in a few hours. If you didn't have that vision, everybody would quit. And so I would say, like, Mark, don't let the murkiness of today sideline you for the vision for your life. Because there's going to be hurdles. There's going to be murkiness. And it's the it's the day to day struggle that 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 makes it worth it. Like it's the day to day rewards that make it worth it. It's not necessarily like this big shiny end goal. It's the process in getting there. That's what builds the character, and that's what that's what makes me a better person. It doesn't make me a better person to get all this money and to win this award. It makes me a better person to go through the process. That's incredible, Mark. Thank you for sharing that. And it's uh, I think that. The idea of just keeping that one percent, keep your foot in front of the in front of yourself, and just think of the how it's going to feel when you get to that goal, is the is a big motivation because I think a lot of people can be stuck in a dark place, and not see the end in sight. And if you could figure out the light at the end of the tunnel, you're eventually going to make it there, and it does get better. So that's sage advice, Mark. I really appreciate that. You're welcome, and, man. If anyone wants to stay at these incredible properties, I know they're in the Smoky Mountains, but where can they find out more about you and more about these properties? Because I'm sure people would love to experience what we just discussed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you can follow me on Instagram at M, as in Mark, McDaniel629. Um, obviously, we have a company called staysimply.com. We have a car wash distributorship called Southern Car Wash Solutions. Um Pick pick your but, pick your vice, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Airbnb, can, car wash, yeah. <laughs> but in McDaniel six two nine, I have my own podcast and we're in the process of changing some of that up. Um, but in McDaniel six two nine, I post some content out there and you can reach out to me there. Perfect. Again, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I think this was a, a great episode and thank you for sharing your your uh, amazing entrepreneurship journey with us. 
We'll Thanks a lot, soon. man. Really appreciate you. Take care. Thank you for tuning into Service Business Success with Class. Are you craving more strategies to supercharge your business growth? You can connect with me at successwithclass.com or on my Instagram at Stevie Class. And remember, when you hit subscribe, it's a win-win. You'll get your hands on all the latest tips and you'll be supporting the show too. Thanks again for joining. Until next time.